Well, it feels like it's been a rough few weeks for general practice, hasn't it? Run ragged through the right-wing media, piled in by politicians, and all for something that all of us have been doing throughout the whole pandemic. There was a lot of frustration that we didn't seem to have a voice. Where were the RCGP? Where were the BMA? And in fact, I think they were trying to get the message out that we're doing a great job, that we've been working hard, that people are being seen. But the problem you've got is that when the people and organisations that you're trying to engage with don't care, when they don't want to know the truth, they know it already and they don't want to share that truth because that's not their agenda, then you're pretty stuck. You're dead in the water. I watched Martin Marshall, chair of the RCGP, be grilled by Jeremy Hunt. Jeremy looking super smug, sat upon a throne in his politician's palace, looking down upon the serfs. Martin Marshall gave a decent account, but unfortunately, part of the problem is being forced to talk in sound bites. What we really needed was the space and the time to have a proper discussion, to explain and explore the issues in a meaningful way. But this was a media circus, and that wasn't going to happen. I thought Martin Marshall did a decent job. But of course, the odds were always stacked against him. This was never going to be a fair fight. One of the most insightful comments on Twitter, I think I read over the past couple of weeks, was simply someone pointing out, why did we ever think that the politicians would be supporting us? They are not our friends. They want to control us. Why control? Is it all part of some big conspiracy? Well, I think I've pointed out in this podcast before, I absolutely don't believe that government has a grand plan for the NHS. I don't believe there is some overarching conspiracy for politicians to try and privatise the NHS and farmers all out. They barely know what they're doing day to day and they definitely don't have a plan beyond getting re-elected at the next election. But perhaps it's not politicians that we need to be worried about. Perhaps it's corporations, because unlike politicians, they are very good at longer term thinking. I was at a party this weekend. It was my sister-in-law's 40th birthday. 50, 60, 70 maybe. People in a pub all squashed in, drinking, singing, dancing, just like the old days. Can you even imagine it? And I got talking to a guy that worked in politics in London. And he talked about how general practice was being bought up by private companies. Now, general practice is tough. It's the toughest it's ever been. There's no shame if you're a partner in wanting to cut your losses, become salaried and letting the day-to-day running be made by a large private company. It lets you focus on doing what you want to be doing, which is just looking after your patients. So lots of practices are being snapped up by companies such as Operos, Oprose is a UK subsidiary of a very large American healthcare company called Centene Corporation. Now, being part of a large corporation is not necessarily a bad thing. It may be that they've got the resources to be able to put in place things that will help you help your patients and actually improve outcomes as opposed to um, making them worse. But I said to the guy, I said, well, what, what's the incentive here? How can a private company actually ever hope to profit out of UK NHS general practice? Most of us are just kind of like hand to mouth. And he pointed out that unlike us, these companies can afford to play the long game. So they may take a loss for a year five years, 10 years, who knows, but they're playing the long game. 
the negativity over the last few weeks has already driven healthcare professionals out of general practice. Many of them will never come back. The cracks are starting to show. The pressure increases on those remaining. How long can it be tolerable for? What do you do when finally the wheels come off? Finally, we get to the point of total system change. And as part of that, realistically, there's total funding change as well. Is general practice going to become just like the dentist? Ever decreasing the amount of NHS work that doesn't pay for the treatments you're meant to be giving? Ultimately, increasing the amount of private work you do? That's when the money starts rolling in. And that's when the corporations that will have bought up a substantial proportion of general practice can start cashing in. So why is the right-leaning press laying into general practice right now? Is it because, as one of the journalists in the Daily Mail um, said, is it because they actually want to try and help general practice? They're on our side and they're trying to improve things. I had to chuckle with that one because, no, that's not the reason. They just want a story and to further the agenda of their bosses, people with money and power. So this is Conspiracy Theory 101. Oh, wait, sorry. I meant to be doing a Hot Topics podcast. It's Thursday, the 7th of October. This is the Hot Topics podcast. Okay, thanks for joining us once again, everyone. Neil Tucker here from MB Medical. Yeah, I've got my usual rant out the way. Now we can focus on some medicine and some research that's come out relevant to us in primary care over the last couple of weeks. Now, I seem to have made myself very busy over the last couple of weeks, and that's because I agreed to put together our Green GP course. So this is obviously the um, topic of the month, what with the um, COP26 um, World Climate Talks coming up in Glasgow in just a few weeks' time. And most of us are becoming much more environmentally aware and are thinking about ways that we can improve things for um, our patients, our populations, our children and the future. So quick plug, please do join me on Tuesday, this Tuesday coming, the 12th of October, 6pm for our Green GP course. It is entirely free. Just go on the website and sign up. And we'll be covering issues around health, the environment, pollution, sustainability, and what we can do in general practice to try and make things better um, for our patients right now and in the future, for our um, communities right now and in the future, and for our practices. We might even be able to save ourselves time and money as we do it. It's a triple win. It's a bit like the Euro Millions, but you actually stand a chance of getting your money back. If you can't make it at six, join us a bit later. We'll be going on till nine or 9.30, discussing the easy wins, but then also going into more depth. And if you can't join us on Tuesday, then just um, come and watch it on demand. The hope is that we can change theory into action. Now, this is a really hot topic at the moment. All of the major journals have come together to um, put out strong editorials over the last two weeks 
discussing environmental impacts on health and what we need to do to try and improve things for our patients. So first bit of research, and I'm going to keep this really topical, so that's in the BMJ. And um, this was looking at long-term exposure to low-level air pollution and mortality in a number of um, different European countries. And we already know, of course, air pollution is bad for you. And there's set targets by the UK, also by the World Health Organization, also different ones in Europe, uh, at which they consider an acceptable amount of air pollution to be for the population. And the reality is in the UK, air pollution in general, on average is relatively low compared with some um, other countries. So uh, let's take a city such as Delhi, for instance, has approximately 10 times the level of air pollution as London does. So um, we're not doing as bad as some parts of the world. But the interesting thing about this study is that it showed that there is no safe level of air pollution. It sounds pretty obvious, doesn't it? But from the starting point of zero, there is a linear increase in risks of mortality and particularly things like cardiovascular disease, also lung issues, lung cancer as well. All of them um, going up uh, in a linear fashion when uh, you see air pollution levels rise. What does this tell us? No level of air pollution is safe. Governments should be doing their damnedest to try and reduce it as much as possible for the health of their nation. Is there anything more that we could be doing for this in general practice? Well, we do talk about this. Come and join us on the Green GP course next Tuesday. And that's enough about me plugging the environment. Two more pieces of research. Firstly, in the BJGP, and a fabulous piece of research this, this is looking at paediatric gastroenteritis in primary care. It's a randomized controlled trial looking at the use of oral ondansetron. Now, it's well known to all of us that if kids get gastroenteritis and they're vomiting, we just let them puke it out. Don't worry, kids. You'll be absolutely fine. You're young. You can take this. Sure, if I was an adult, I'd probably think about having some medication. Tough luck, kiddos. Now, this study was looking at children aged six months to six years, presenting to one of three out-of-hour centres in the north of the Netherlands, diagnosed by a GP with acute gastroenteritis. They're then randomised to have either the oral rehydration therapy as part of the control group or oral rehydration therapy plus oral ondansetron at um, 0.1 milligrams per kilograms. And they found that 43% of the control group were still vomiting after four hours compared with 19.5% of the ondansetron group. So that gave a numbers needed to treat of just four. Ondansetron also reduced the number of vomiting episodes within four hours by a half. And unsurprisingly, because of all of this, parental satisfaction was very good. So it almost sounds too good to be true. And of course, when something sounds too good to be true, it may well be too good to be true. If I get an email from someone saying, Neil, Neil, if you give me just £100, I can use that to save the prince in some country you've never heard of. And then I'll give you £1,000 back. It's probably making it up. Anyway, they're not making up this data. But they also said that although the rates of vomiting went down, ondansetron didn't seem to actually increase the amount of oral rehydration fluids that um, children were able to take. It also didn't seem to lead to fewer hospital referrals or admissions. 
So if those are the key metrics that we're working off of, one wonders whether it really is worth it. And so as the linked editorial says, perhaps we can have a cautious optimism about the use of ondansetron, but also think about why children don't end up getting much extra fluid in, which is really what's going to be keeping them alive, and what we can do to improve on that. Okay, second bit of research. And this was one that caught my eye in the BMJ. This was the accuracy of the PHQ-9 um, questionnaire, so the, the screening tool for detecting depression. And I wonder, are you someone who uses a screening tool for assessing people who come in and say that they're feeling low or depressed? Do you use PHQ-9? Do you use BEX? Ten years ago, of course, in England, at least, we were being incentivized to use questionnaires. We had to use them. And so we were all um, desperately filling these in and getting the patients to fill them out again after four to six weeks or so to tick that quaff box. And then they got rid of those indicators, and I suspect that a vast majority of us stopped using them. So is there merit in these tools above and beyond just using our clinical judgment? So the first question really is how accurate are they? And this paper finds in its meta-analysis, so 44,000 participants from 100 different eligible studies, they found that if you use the standard cutoff of 10 or greater on the PHQ-9, that gives you a sensitivity of 85% and a specificity of 85%. So what we can read into that is the fact that the PHQ-9 tool is decent, but not great. The paper then goes on to talk about how you can improve the sensitivity or the specificity by adjusting the cutoff value for depression up or down. And this is the point at which it lost me because then it has a box that says putting result results into practice. So maximizing sensitivity and specificity does not necessarily maximize the likelihood of patient benefits, minimize costs and harms or reflect local concerns such as capacity for conducting assessments of people with positive screens. So clinicians could choose a cutoff value based on clinical priorities and local resources. Well, if we're going to be using our clinical judgment to decide where we set our cutoff point, might as well we just use our clinical judgment in the first place and possibly one of the most important things to remember when we're thinking about using these screening tools is that they are screening tools they aren't designed to make a diagnosis we make the diagnosis so that makes me wonder how many other tools have we been encouraged to blindly follow which misrepresents the purpose of that tool do let me know. You've probably got lots of ideas. Please do get in touch. So hot topics at mbmedical.com on the email, at GP Hot Topics on Twitter. You'll find us on Facebook as well. Please do share. On that note, I think I better leave you. I've got a lot to do before Tuesday. But do keep a lookout on the mbmedical.com website. So this Saturday, we've got our cancer course the Green GP course on Tuesday. Next Friday, we've got the Hot Topics course live as well. It's all going on here. So please do come and join us and I'll see you in a few weeks. Take care. Bye bye.